You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 11th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster. On today's show... It's a very sad situation. It's a very bad situation. And we want to get to the bottom of it. Can Donald Trump unravel the mystery surrounding the disappearance of missing Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi? Theresa May could face a vote of no confidence if the party propping up her government gives her upcoming budget the thumbs down. First he was a Republican, now he's a Democrat. US media mogul Michael Bloomberg is the latest bigwig to play the political merry-go-round. My guests today are Carol Walker and Jeffrey Howard who will be discussing this and the day's other top story. Denmark is building an island to create more space for its growing population. Is this the right way to handle a people overspill? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalist and broadcaster Carol Walker and the writer and academic Jeffrey Howard. Welcome both of you to the programme. Now, we start with Donald Trump's pledge to get to the bottom of the case of the missing Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Mr Khashoggi, a US resident and staunch critic of the Saudi monarchy, vanished a week ago after entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to obtain wedding papers. The Turkish authorities believe Mr Khashoggi was murdered in the building, although the Saudis did deny this. Well, since becoming president, Donald Trump has tightened Americans' relationship with the kingdom. But could an investigation into Mr Khashoggi's disappearance threaten those bonds? So, Carol, what do you think? Do you think that uh, Mr Trump is sincere when he says we got to get to the bottom of this? Well, can I just say, first of all, I'm delighted to hear Donald Trump expressing some concern for a journalist instead of uh, heaping acrimony and threats on them, which is his normal modus operandi. Um, it's good to hear him saying that he wants to get to the bottom of this. Um, they're demanding to know. This is a very worrying and rather sinister case. Um, as you mentioned there, Kamal Khashoggi, who had a monthly column in the Washington Post, he'd been an outspoken critic of the Saudi regime. We know that the Saudis have been trying to clamp down on dissenting voices. He went into the uh embassy in Istanbul and has not been seen since. Um, there are strong suspicions that he has been murdered and even that his body may already have mm. been removed from the premises. But underlying all this, Donald Trump went on to say that relations with Saudi Arabia were excellent. And I think you have to remember how much the United States has invested in its relationship with Saudi Arabia. Donald Trump has met uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin well, Saudi Salman. Saudi was one of his first stomping grounds on, the, on his official tours. Exactly. One of the first places he visited. Uh, and only about a month ago, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, signed an arms deal with the Saudis that's reputed to be worth around $110 billion. So there's a lot at stake. And there's no sign yet that Donald Trump is prepared to go beyond those words to actually 
confront the Saudis. Yeah, and let's take this idea of a lot at stake, Geoffrey, because yes, the deals have been signed, but there's also another school of thought that the Trump family personally benefit from having a good relationship with the Saudis. Well, there's no doubt that the Trump family are very uh, enthusiastic about MBS and their relationship with MBS. And I, and I think, as always, the, the president finds it very difficult to distinguish between his role as the president and his role as the head of um, the Trump companies. And so he certainly doesn't distinguish on a regular basis between them. I mean, I was heartened the other day when um, the president said that, you know, we can't let this happen to reporters. We can't let this happen to anybody. But then just today, he had another press conference uh, in the Oval and uh, he made the comment, well, this thing is happening in Turkey. Khashoggi isn't even a U.S. citizen, he said. Even though he went to America for sanctuary. <laughs> That's exactly right. Even though he went to America for sanctuary, even though he's a prominent columnist for the Washington Post, a major American paper. Um, and so Trump uh, is trying to have his cake and eat it too here. He's trying to show the requisite concern so that the left doesn't, and the center for all, for all intents and purposes, doesn't completely freak out over the fact that once again, Mr. Trump seems hostile to basic democratic values and the idea of a pr- free press. On the other hand, he doesn't want to upset his good buddy MBS. I mean, that first trip to Riyadh. Mm. Remember the big projection of um, Trump's oh, visage right. on the he side was of the building? Swords and dancing oh my with the goodness! Other Saudi it, was, it, it was really something. <laughs> and, and you know, this kind of this kind of song and dance and charming uh, offensive really works with the president. And I think he he remains um, of the view that the Saudis are a good thing, that MBS is a good thing, and he doesn't want to ruffle too many feathers. But then, on the other hand, Carol, I guess you could say that the Saudis know this and they've got him over a barrel because they know that he doesn't want to jeopardise that relationship. So it's like, hell fire, if we've got somebody in, our, in, the, in, the, in that country who we don't like because they're slagging off the royal family, then we might as well just go and take care of them because we know that at the end of the day, no one ain't going to do a thing about it. Well, the Saudis are trying to suggest, first of all, that there's no evidence that Mr. Khashoggi has actually been murdered. The uh, Saudi ambassador to the United States has said, look, we're happy to cooperate. Um, We're not aware anything's gone here, but you can come and search our premises, presumably uh, now that um, all traces of the misdemeanor uh, (laughs) have been removed. Um, and, And I think that the Saudis will be hoping that they can simply hush things up and that because this happened, happened inside the Saudi Arabia, uh, inside the Saudi embassy, which is in Turkey, that there will be enough different barriers to get through here that the whole thing will simply be hushed up. Mm. And they will be confident that President Trump will care enough about that relationship not to want to push it too far. Because there's not just this as you've been talking about this extraordinary personal relationship um, between uh, Donald Trump and uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, But the Americans see the Saudis as a really important uh, security link in Mm. the Middle East, a a bulwark against the rising influence of Iran. They will think that there is far more at stake here uh, and they will certainly question whether it's worth really rocking the boat um, for the sake of one journalist. Mm. And that is the point, isn't it? It comes back to the question that I raised before. The Saudis know that at the end of the day, the West can shout about this as much as it wants, but they are powerless to do anything about it. If it's Russia, that's a different story. We can all impose sanctions, but no one's going to do that to Saudi Arabia. They're not just economically important. They are also geopolitically important. That's exactly right. You know, sometimes I I wake up in the morning and I imagine that President Obama was still the president (laughs) and here we were. And and in that world, of course, Iran and American relations would continue to be thawing, presumably. Saudi Arabia would have been marginal. And this could have been um, part of a larger strategy. And I think 
um, Hillary Clinton would have continued this strategy to marginalize Saudi Arabia um, and try to to help the the emancipation and liberalization and democratization of Iran as part of that overall strategy. Um, but of course, given the amount of um, given the stakes uh, of the present situation and the fact that the the current uh, American government foreign policy really does hinge on continued cooperation with Saudi Arabia. They really, really don't want to rock the boat at all here. And um, I mean, in his heart of hearts, I don't think the president cares <laughs> about the lives of, of, of this particular, the life of this particular journalist. And, and I don't think we have any reason to think that he's, he's speaking sincerely. Um, there was a, a time during the campaign where uh, President or Mr. Trump appeared on the the popular uh, program Morning Joe, and um, uh, the host Joe Scarborough put it to put it to Mr. Trump. You know, why are you so sympathetic to to President Putin? He he kills journalists, and uh, Trump's reply was, "Well, you know, we've killed people too." <laughs> <laughs> and so I I I I really keep going back to his comment today, where he says, "Well, this thing happened to Turkey, and Khashoggi isn't even a U.S. citizen." I think he re- that was the tell. That's where he told us what he was really thinking, mm. which is that he just doesn't care. It's interesting you mentioned. Russia, because when you actually broaden the picture, what this case has in common with uh, Salisbury, where the Skripals were attacked, was the fact that it was so badly executed. Now, pardon my ignorance, but I always assumed that if you are a spy or you've been hired to kill somebody, you sure as hell make sure that you cover up the cameras and you don't leave any trails that uh, if if the authorities or ordinary journalists can't put it together, specialist um, websites which actually try to um, unmask the guilty um, can, can actually say, yeah, this guy did it and this is his address. Well, there is that element of it, but I think there's also this rather worrying concern that the Saudis simply thought we can get away with it. They the actually felt yeah. uh, they had actually had the audacity to think, listen, we can get away with this. Um, the fact that uh, vehicles with blacked out windows were seen <laughs> leaving the embassy within a few hours of the disappearance of Mr. Khashoggi is indeed deeply disturbing and deeply worrying. And of course, Diplomatic missions in foreign countries are seen as a little slice of that country abroad. So Mm. they will have felt somewhat protected by that diplomatic immunity. They clearly feel that this is something that they can get away with, that they will have silenced an outspoken critic. And do you know what? It looks pretty much as though for all those words from President Trump today, uh, they may well just be right on that. Yeah, I mean... I, it strikes me that it's it might not be a coincidence that um, Jamal Khashoggi worked for the Washington Post. Trump has been extremely critical of the Washington Post. He's been extremely um, critical of, of Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post. I mean, it's it's just possible that um, MBS and his his guys were sitting around the table saying, "Well, it's the Washington Post. Will, will Trump really care so much?" Mm. Um, and if and if that's that's a that's a, a striking possibility, I, I hope it's not true. But but the the rhetoric, the anti press rhetoric that has infused this administration. And that's been particularly virulent when directed to the Washington Post. Um, it might be relevant to, well, to well, the reason. It was certainly something that was picked here. up by the UN chief, I believe, about mm. um, the, the the language that has been used against journalists and the fear that somebody could be attacked or killed. So in, in that sense, it has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But just just picking up on the idea of the Washington Post and, uh, the, well, the conspiracy theory angle of it, I suppose. I mean, there are reports that US intercepts actually picked up conversations of Saudis planning to lure Mr. Khashoggi in, into returning to Saudi Arabia and face a, a, a really appalling fate, one would assume. So I guess that, that that backs it up, the possibility that America's intelligence community may have been aware of this and... Uh, 
did nothing. That would be truly terrifying, and would, that would be a huge scandal if the president himself knew in particular and then directed them not to do anything. Although it's interesting that uh, Jamal Khashoggi himself, I think, was aware of the risks he was taking. Um, there was a, 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 an interview today from a, a close associate of him who had met him in London very recently, and uh, Mr. Khashoggi had said, look, um, I know that the, the Saudi royal court court is out to get me. Um, he felt that while he was out of the country, while he was not in Saudi Arabia, um, that being a high profile journalist would be enough to protect him. Um, but clearly, when he ventured uh, into Turkey, when he ventured into the Saudi mm. embassy, um, it does look as though that is the moment when the Saudis chose to strike. Yeah, because he was seen going into the building, wasn't seen leaving it, but there was a black van parked, parked outside the building. There was also a private plane um, at the, the airstrip at uh, Istanbul Airport. So clearly something rather suspicious has been going on. But a story, of course, that will no doubt continue many layers to it. Let's move on now to something a little bit closer to home. Now, the political party that is propping up Theresa May's government is giving her a king-size Brexit headache. The Democratic Unionists, or the DUP, have threatened to vote down her upcoming budget later this month if the Brexit negotiations lead to a border dividing Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. Well, the DUP's 10 Westminster MPs have kept Mrs May in power since she lost her majority in the 2017 general election. But the big question... Would they really pull the rug from under her feet by forcing a vote of no confidence? Would they do that? I mean, Arlene Foster is a pretty tough-looking lady. She does not mince her words. Uh, and <laughs> She's she, a DUP leader, of Absolutely. Course. And she and other senior figures in the Democratic Unionist Party insist that they are not bluffing and they are absolutely furious. And at the heart of all this is the desire after Brexit to try to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland, which will remain inside mm, the, the European Union. Everyone involved has said we're not going to have a hard border. Theresa May has said, listen, don't worry, I'm going to make sure that there is uh, no special arrangement for Northern Ireland, no division between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But what has happened is that there has been a complete breakdown of trust because uh, Arlene Foster, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, went to Brussels today. She met Michel Barnier, who's the chief negotiator on the EU side. He spelled out what the latest proposals to avoid that border would be. And he made it clear that there would be extra checks uh, on goods that arrive uh, in Northern Ireland from the UK. Mm. She spelled out that effectively it's going to mean Northern Ireland staying in some form of single market, being tied to quite a lot of the rules and regulations of the EU. And what the democratic unionists fear is that that, that means that when the rest of the UK makes new trade deals around the, the world with places like the United States, Northern Ireland won't be able to benefit from that. They also feel that not only is the historic union which they exist to protect uh, under threat, but also that Theresa May has been pulling the wool over their eyes. She's been making these public statements saying, listen, I'm going to make sure that there are no new barriers between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland. Michel Barnier has been rather more, more open and firm about exactly mm. what the new arrangements will mean. And the DUP are now furious. And um, yes, it is certainly possible that they could decide to pull the rug from underneath the government. There is an irony to this, of course, because Northern Ireland voted to remain in the EU. And it's the DUP 
that is basically supporting this government and which is making or pushing the government into a position where decisions that will be made, foisted, if you like, on a population that said we want to stay in the EU. And it, 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 it's, a bit, it's, well, it's a bit like trying to detangle the, the strings of spaghetti on a plate, really, isn't it? That's exactly right. I, my mind went to this scene in the film Apollo 13, uh, where the, all the engineers are on the ground and they're trying to hack the problem up in the space shuttle. And they, and they basically a large uh, triangle and they need to fit it inside a small circle. So we have to get this into this using nothing but this. And you can look at it and say, how are they possibly going to do this? Of course, they do in the end. I'm not so confident here. Look, it's a, it seems like a classic a classic trilemma. There are three things. We want all three things, but we can't have all three things at the same time. You want seamlessness between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That's what the DUP want, right? They want re- proper proper integration. They don't want different rules for Great Britain on the one hand and Northern Ireland on the other hand. But then there's the other people who are insisting on seamlessness between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. That's certainly what those concerned about the prospects of, of Irish peace um, are, are thinking about. Uh, and then the third bit of the trilemma is that the UK is is going to is going to leave the European Union. It's going to leave the single market and the customs union. Now, the cl- classic response to a trilemma like this is you have to get rid of one of them. Uh, and so for well, a, well, which one? <laughs> and so for for a Remainer like me, it's obvious we just get rid of the la- last one. We stay in the EU and everything's fine. Everything sorts itself out. But that's of course not not on the table. No, well, for well, Theresa not, May, not anyway. yet. Anyway, not yet. <laughs> unless there is a second referendum. But let's not go down there because really, from your excellent su- summary, Carol. It all boils down to this question of trust. And this is what Mrs May has always been up against because there were a lot of pro-Brexiteers, well, Brexiteers in her party who said, hang on a minute, we cannot have a leader who supported David Cameron, who wanted to leave Europe, actually leading us out of Europe. There's always been this question about her integrity. And here it is again, this time effectively being expressed by the very people who are keeping her in power. Look, we have a deeply divided country and a deeply divided parliament. And Theresa May's own party and government is deeply divided. Um, Theresa May voted to remain in the EU. She wasn't a particularly high profile campaigner. She has since said that she is absolutely committed to delivering on the decision of the EU referendum. But, but many, <laughs> many of the Brexiteers in her party, those who really fought for it, feel that throughout all of this, she's been trying to manage a huge problem instead of seeing the opportunities that there could be. She now has this huge problem where not only are the DUP, which are effectively propping up her government, threatening to pull the plug, and they failed to support her uh, in a vote uh, in Parliament last night on a less significant Mm. issue. This was an agricultural bill, wasn't it? Exactly. But you've got uh, a hardcore of at least 40 ardent Brexiteers who have said that if Theresa May sticks with her current plan, which they feel will keep the UK much too closely tied to EU rules and regulations, that they will vote against that plan. That would be more than enough to defeat the plan. Um, You have got hopes in number 10 that they can somehow stitch some sort of deal together with the EU and that if they come back to Parliament, they can say to MPs, look, we've got something here. It's got to be better than no deal which everyone agrees would be very, very Mm. difficult indeed. Um, And it's got to be better than all the upheaval of a general election or another referendum. But, you know, it's very, very difficult indeed to see where she can find a deal that can bring enough MPs on board for her to actually get it through Parliament. And if she's defeated in Parliament, then really all bets are off as to what happens. I mean, look, she's held on with the support of the DUP 
it came at a very big financial price. About a billion pounds or something was pledged to to, to Northern Ireland as a result. That was the trade-off. In light of where we are now, that looks like a pretty naff investment, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I mean, it helped her um, maintain power, so it it worked in in that respect. Um, But you know, she's had to be thinking ahead and thinking about her legacy here. You know, what are people going to look back at my administration and say I've accomplished? And um, she must be one of the unhappiest people in the country right now. And especially given the amount of bad faith criticism she's getting from within her own party. Look, you've got a lot of good faith disagreement among Tories um, with respect to, to this problem. But when Boris Johnson comes on and says that, look, the, the EU backstop um, is going to make the UK a permanent EU colony with no right mm. to esta- escape. And Theresa May's... Stewart, the analogy of a sewer side fest as well or something. Exactly. Extremely irresponsible, inflammatory language um, that just reminds us that the story, that the, the fate of the United Kingdom as it's been determined in the past couple of years is really just the story of the inter, the bitter internal party politics of the Tory party. Um, and it's, it's quite a depressing situation. Oh dear. Well, let's not be too depressed. There's no reason <laughs> to be depressed. Let's move on, in fact, because... We're going to the United States of America. We really are doing the geographical tour here because we're going to look at the media tycoon and former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, because he has rejoined the Democratic Party. Now, in a social media post, Mr. Bloomberg said a potential constitutional crisis under Donald Trump was the reason behind his decision. Before becoming mayor back in 2001, Mr. Bloomberg joined the Republican Party and at one point even considered running for president as an independent. In all likelihood, he won't be the first or indeed even the last politician to change seats on the political merry-go-round. A certain Ronald Reagan once said, and I quote, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, it left me. And look what happened to him. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think he's serious? about standing in 2020, because that, that seems to be what the suggestion is, clearing the, clearing the decks for the big fight. Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's absolutely serious about setting the stage. Now, I think he'll make the judgment call later. If there's an obvious favorite uh, who's going to come in, then he'll he'll back off. But I don't think there's going to be an obvious favorite who comes in. I think it's well, going to be talk a... about Joe Biden as well throwing his yeah, hat in. But, but even if Joe Biden gets in, I think you're going to get Cory Booker from from the senator from New Jersey. I think you're going to get Kamala Harris, the senator from California. Maybe you're going to get Oprah Winfrey, or maybe oh, she you're... said no. <laughs> she... Okay, so Oprah's, Oprah said no so far. For now. But, but, yes, for, for now. For now. Um, but I think it's probably going to be a pretty crowded stage as we're looking forward to those 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 debates in the Democratic Party. Um, and so I think Bloomberg's probably pretty serious. He's invested around $80 million just this electoral season in trying to help flip the House of Representatives um, on behalf of the Democrats. So that's a huge amount of money um, that he's invested in trying to wrench power from the Republicans. I mean, certainly I think he previously would have liked to run as a moderate, but, but he was quite explicit that he just doesn't see a place for himself, as you were suggesting, in, in Trump's Republican Party. Um, the question is whether today Democratic Party that is very much interested in some of these much more progressive candidates like Kamala Harris, like mm. Cory Booker, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman who was just elected to the Bronx, someone who describes herself as a democratic socialist, a party for whom these are the most enthralling and enthusiastic personalities. Will it have a home for these very much centrist candidates, people much closer to Hillary Clinton, like Mike Bloomberg, who are much cozier with Wall Street, who are much cozier with the political center, and certainly wouldn't describe himself as a democratic socialist? Mm. And that's the weakness, isn't it, Carol? The fact that he is a product of Wall Street. I mean, his legend is that he got, a, was it, I think it was a $10 million payoff from Salman Brothers and turned it into this phenomenal multi-platform media outlet that we see today. It looks like politics of the billionaires. Uh, 
Absolutely, but Americans don't seem to worry too much about that. Um, all presidential campaigns uh, seem to be funded by in millions, billions of dollars of money flowing in. And I think anyone who is serious about standing for high office in the United States seems to have to uh, go out there and earn a few millions before they can even contemplate doing it. He is somebody who is who is a big character, who is a recognisable face. He's got a track record from when he was uh, mayor in New York. Um, he clearly, I think, like a few others, is looking beyond the Trump era. But it's interesting also that he makes the point that part of the reason that he's taken this step now is because he does think that the nation needs the the checks and balances mm. of the uh, of a strong democratic opposition when you've got a president like Donald Trump. Yeah, the constitutional crisis that he was alluding to is this the much talked about impeachment that hasn't happened but might happen at some juncture (laughs) absolutely that's a prospect on the horizon um but i think the the real concern that bloomberg has in mind is that you know the founder fathers you know imagined a situation where the president um uh would be this kind of demagogic figure, but they imagined that the the Congress would be a check on him. Well, under the Republicans, the Congress has just kind of gone along with whatever the president wanted. Give him tax cuts, or give them tax cuts, give them conservative Supreme Court justices, and they'll happily accept, well, maybe not happily, but reluctantly accept the rest of the craziness that comes along with the Trump administration. And they really haven't been a check on him at all. Um, uh, so I think he's certainly his efforts in trying to flip the House of Representatives shows that he's very serious about about putting a check on this president. And there's no greater check that you could put on him than trying to oust him from office. Mm. I mean, I, I think the idea, though, of, of a contest between Bloomberg and Trump would actually be quite fascinating. And, and the cynical side of my personality feels that, it, that um, in terms of the 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 the, the, um, the, the insults, that Bloomberg lobs at um, Trump, vice versa, will be about wealth because I think that Bloomberg's worth over fifty billion or something, and Trump is probably a pauper in comparison. Yeah, or something. And, and, and as far as I know, Bloomberg didn't inherit half a billion from his from his dad <laughs> uh, uh, to parlay into a real estate fortune. So, it's um, interesting that he is a, a politician who's been on this political journey. You know, some politicians are, are vilified and criticised for switching parties, but of course, what the politicians always try to do, as you mentioned in that uh, famous quote from Ronald Reagan, um, is to say, well, look, I'm sticking to my principles. It's the party that has moved. Mm. And it does seem as though uh, Bloomberg is making this point that he feels that the Republican Party under Donald Trump has moved so far that he's sticking to his principles, but that those are better represented in the Democratic Party. And, And I think if you can, as a politician, persuade the public that you are that is your motivation rather than that you're doing it Mm. out of political opportunism, then I think that is something that uh, can endear you to the voters. I mean, the the real worry is that Mike Bloomberg may well be someone who could beat beat Donald Trump in a general election, but he might well lose in a Democratic primary, and so he'd never even get there and get the chance. That's no, the but, but anything's possible. Anything can be upended. Anything's We've seen this. possible. Anything yeah, because is disruption possible. is the big word in the lexicon this day. And that, let's move on now. And finally, in fact, to Denmark, because Denmark is planning to build a new island near Copenhagen's harbour to create more space for the city's growing population. Prime Minister Lars Lokke Rasmussen said the island would cost over $3 billion and could be ready by 2020. 70, with housing for 35,000 people. It would also protect the city from rising sea levels. Have the Danes found the answer to dealing with an overspill of people? It is interesting when you're looking at population growth, you have to think outside the box and that's what they're doing. 
and have big, ambitious plans. It's interesting that Denmark, uh, Copenhagen, like many other countries, is uh, struggling to cope with the demand for housing. Um, There's a big problem that there's a shortage of supply, which is sending prices spiralling upwards. Uh, We have that problem here in the UK, in London. Uh, And it's fascinating to see a country like Denmark that has got a really big, bold, ambitious plan to deal with it. Uh, You know, here in the UK, um, Theresa May keeps saying she's going to tackle the housing crisis. And we've had schemes about help to buy to help people get a bit of extra money. No one's yet suggested building an entire new huge island somewhere out in the Thames estuary so that we could just build Well, Boris Johnson did think about having an airport or something. He did think about uh, putting an island out there. But but it's interesting, as you mentioned, the idea is that this is something that's going to also protect the city from rising sea levels. Um, The problem is, of course, I guess it is an enormous infrastructure project, which is presumably going to take quite some while to create quite some while to construct 35,000 homes and you've got to then build the rest of the infrastructure, Mm. the transport connections, the hospitals, the schools, the shops, so that people actually want to go and live there. But look, if they can do it imaginatively, it could be amazing. Yeah, but I mean, just to sort of throw a fly in the ointment, I mean, there is the view that maybe you've got to deal with the real reasons behind population growth and you can build as many islands as you like, but at the end of the day, those islands will be filled. You're still not getting to the heart of of population growth. Why are we reproducing? Why are we encouraging people to um, put a limit on how many children they bring into the world? Yeah, and I'm sure that those questions will be raised. Although I, I suspect Denmark isn't particularly uh, um, off the charts in terms of its its reproduction levels. Uh, I mean, I think it's a fascinating move, you know, taking really taking a page out of the playbook of the United Arab Emirates who've been building islands for some time. But what I think what the Danes understand is that housing isn't just an economic issue. It's a moral issue. It's a it's a it's an obligation that we all all of us have to create a society in which there is affordable housing. And in many, many wealthy capitals around the world, it's very, very difficult to find affordable housing and they're they're taking action. So I think a lot of us could could learn a lesson from that. Mm. But I guess as well that there are the practicalities if you're going to build an island because the environmental lobby would also have a say on that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I, I think that um, I think that's going to be something that, that, that this is going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, if you're the UAE, as you mentioned, they, they just build entire islands. They uh, outside Dubai, they stick palm tree shaped mm. uh, extensions onto the city so that they can stick a few extra um, expensive hotels out on them. And they don't seem to worry too much about that. Now, I haven't seen the details of these plans or exactly what is involved. I'm sure there will be some Someone who will very soon discover that there is some unique marine life that's going to be endangered by the building of this island. And one suspects that there might be a few legal battles before it gets underway. But I think that our city designers have got to be creative. If they can make this work, then, you know, perhaps it could be a, a blueprint for other cities. Mm. And the final thought, of course, is that if there is uh, an endangered species that uh, could potentially curtail this project, then it will not be completed by 2017, which brings <laughs> Brings us to the end of today's show. Carol Walker and Jeffrey Howard, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Martha Libri, and our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next, then at 1900 hours, it is The Urbanist, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time.